Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Season 1 of the TV version of Building the Future is now streaming online at buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have a couple of the team members from Christopher and Weinberg, Attorneys at Law. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to be on the show with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, so maybe before we kind of get into exactly what you guys do, let's get to know each one of you a little bit better and uh, maybe start off with maybe giving a little bit of a quick intro and kind of a quick bio and then uh, we'll go from there. Sound good? Sounds great. Sure. Sure. Uh, my name is Catherine Koenig, um, and you'll meet Alyssa here in a minute. We both work for Christopher and Weisberg, um, an IP boutique here in Fort Lauderdale. Um, my my background was actually in plant sciences. I went to the University of Florida for a really long time <laughs> and did an undergrad in uh, in horticulture with a, a minor of plant molecular biology, and, and then I went on to grad school there and, and basically did crop production, a, a doctorate program that University of Florida had just started to offer at the time. Um, and it was a land grant school, and I loved the agriculture college, and loved the science, and and uh, thought that was what I was going to do. And then, um, and then by some strange twist of fate, I applied to law school, and um, somebody suggested patent law to me because um, you have to have a requisite amount of science background in order to become a patent attorney. You have to sit for a separate exam with the uh, the patent office. Oh, I didn't know that. So, That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's also a pain in the butt too. It's, it's <laughs> no joke. <laughs> But, um, but, yeah, that's why there are relatively few of us, um, because in addition to having to suffer through law school, you also have to have suffered through a lot of, a lot of science coursework. Um, and I discovered I loved it. So here I am, and, and I, I do some, some plant patent work um, uh, for some clients. And then um, the majority of what I do now is, is medical device work, which I also love. Um, but, again, never, I never thought I'd end up here, uh, and, and I'm so glad I, I did. Um, very good example of... of uh, following the road that you're given and, and not making concrete plans. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Alyssa, do you want to maybe give a quick background on yourself? Sure. My name's Alyssa Tisdall, and I went to college and focused in biology and chemistry, okay. and then after that went to law school. Following law school, I started practicing in Chicago, Illinois, and was doing uh, general litigation, also a little intellectual property as well as business work. And I practiced there for a number of years. After I practiced in Chicago, I then took another bar exam after Illinois in the (laughs) state of Maine. And I practiced in the state of Maine doing litigation and intellectual property as well for a number of years. After practicing in the state of Maine, (laughs) I then moved to the state of Oregon and took a full bar exam and practiced there for uh, about a year. Work gluttons for punishment. (laughs) I can can see that. (laughs) (laughs) And I did food and wine law as well as business law and then came down to Florida and have been down here for five or six years now, took a full bar exam, (laughs) and have been practicing at Christopher and Weisberg now for a number of years doing intellectual property law here. I do a lot of the litigation 
side of things as well as the transactional work. No, very cool. And you both have um, quite impressive backgrounds. And that's um, really why I wanted to have you on the show. And I also think that um, a lot of people don't really understand kind of what they need to do to kind of file a patent or kind of really even cover themselves when they're looking to kind of, you know, build something or they have something that they think is kind of patented. So, but maybe before we kind of get into that, let's maybe cover exactly kind of what your firm does for clients and then we'll kind of get into how to go about kind of reaching out to you guys and kind of the whole process. Does that sound good? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, our firm is, is um, an IP boutique, meaning we don't we don't practice any other area of law except, um, and Alyssa can tell you more about this, but um, we kind of do some some business type law and some contract law and things like that as it as it is on the periphery of intellectual property. Sure. Um, we do pretty much all technology types except some some really in depth pharma um, and chemistry chemistry type things. Gotcha. Um, but we do a lot of a lot of life science, a lot of devices, uh, medical devices. A lot of consumer products, um, computer networking, um, electronics, that kind of thing, and um, and we also the firm also does litigation, um, and and I'll let Alyssa talk about that. Okay. Sure. We do a lot of litigation as it relates to intellectual property, as Catherine said. So the buzzwords that a lot of people will often hear is patent litigation or trademark litigation or trade secret litigation or copyright litigation. And we also deal with litigation with business law and contracts as well, again, because clients oftentimes will come to us and they have litigation as it relates to intellectual property, but then there are things that come along with it that will often involve business disputes and contract disputes. And so we're capable of handling all of those things together. I think that one thing clients often come to us for is, helping them harvest and understand their Mm -hmm. intellectual property. I think a lot of times people hear the buzzwords, you know, thrown around the media, and I can't tell you, and I'm sure Catherine has had this experience as well, how many times a client will call in and say, hey, I have a patent, can you guys help me? And then the client explains it to you, and it ends up being a trademark or a copyright. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just so much because of what you see around in the media and what you read and information that's available. And there's a misconception about a lot of what intellectual property is and in the different uh, categories in which each piece of intellectual property fits. Okay. Kevin, I, I love the title of your, of your podcast because when I, when, when I first heard that, it remi- kind of reminds me of, of what we do. Like, like Alyssa said, I, I love the phrase also harvesting kind of their idea and helping it grow. And so it is kind of like building the future. You know, somebody comes in and, and they have this great idea. And so you start from scratch and you go, you know, where do, where do resources, you know, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of counselors too. Where, do, where should resources be allocated and, and what's the priority for, for your, your business model and, and for your goals for your business? Are you going to build it and see it all the way to the end? Are you going to try to sell it to someone in a couple of years? Are you, do you have partners? Are you a solo? Is it a, a product or a service? Um, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's very interesting to watch some of these companies grow from the initial idea stage into, into something viable. Okay. No. Yeah, totally. I like that's, that always kind of fascinated me. And like, obviously like I, I work kind of on the more of the software side, so I don't really necessarily build something physical, but the, the thing that I love the most is kind of going from a white screen to like a full blown product. Right. And 
And, yeah, and so like, I, I totally get that. Right. But uh, so I, I'm kind of curious and I, I'm sure like a lot of people and a lot of the listeners, they don't even really know where to start. So at what point does it make sense to reach out to um, somebody like yourselves? And like, do I need to have at what phase in my kind of development do I need to kind of reach out to somebody like you guys? Sure. I I personally think the earlier and the sooner, the better. Absolutely. Because let's say a company is going to pick their name. Okay. And maybe they want to use that name and tie it to goods or services and potentially use it as a trademark. Well, what happens if they pick that name and it turns out some other company is using that same name unbeknownst to them and they put in tons of money and time developing that name and then lo and behold, it could be five, ten years down the line, you find out you have an issue. Whereas if you had come to, for example, our office early on, you probably wouldn't have run into that issue. So the sooner the better when people are starting businesses, have ideas, because even if they're not going to come on board right away, we can kind of gear them and and tell them where to go and what to do and, and help guide their choices. And then when it's appropriate period, when it's an appropriate time, if they decide they want to file, for example, a trademark application or if they want to prepare a patent application, we're then in the best uh, position to help them out, and they've also put themselves in the best position. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. The, so I'm curious then, so I, I come to you guys, basically, you kind of brought up something interesting earlier that I, I found was kind of interesting when you said you basically set them up depending on kind of where I want the company to go. And your, your comment was like, if I want this, like, let's say like if I want to sell the company mm-hmm. to somebody or maybe I want to license or, or whatever the deal is, like do you guys do different things um, when, based on depending what I want to do with like my product or, or what I'm ever, what I'm looking to kind of trademark or? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. There, there are some companies um, where you're, you're saying, um, okay, you know, first and foremost, like Alyssa said, we always recommend doing at least a preliminary um, trademark search for your business name. Um, because trademark rights arise with use, with first use. So if somebody starts using it before you, even if it's not in a, in a, you know, in the USPTO database, somebody could be using it. Um, and so the sooner you start using it, the better. So the sooner you can clear it and start using it, the better. Um, if somebody comes in with an idea that might be patentable, um, the patent system used to be a first-to-invent system where you kind of could, as long as you didn't disclose your idea, you could work on it for a couple of years maybe and then file. Um, you know, uh, but, but now it's, it's a first-to-file. So as long as somebody didn't steal that idea from you, if they independently came up with the idea on their own and filed before you, you're out of luck. So, okay. so there's there's really kind of a rush now, and that's that's in line with with most other countries, really. Um, but but um, now now you really need to start to develop that and and get something filed, at least a provisional application. So so Alyssa's right. I mean, the sooner the better is is wonderful. But um, also when you think, you know, if if somebody wants to really attract investors or attract potential purchasers, um, you know. They might want to file something quickly so they can start talking to these people, start courting these people, start getting um, prototypers on board. And in that case, the best decision may be to, to, to file what's called a provisional application 
it's not examined and it will never issue and you know return to an issued patent that's enforceable but it gets your it you know gives you filing date gets your foot in the door and it kind of gives you a little more security to go and talk to potential partners and developers about your idea because if you're in a hurry to really start spreading the word about something um, you you want to have as much protection from the beginning as you can um, and also uh, you know we found that a lot of investors like to see um, some kind of of IP portfolio, um, sure. including trademarks, including um, you know patent applications. Some investors like to see uh, more of an indication that something is actually patentable. So maybe they want you to expedite um, examination before the patent office so that they can get an idea faster about whether or not your idea really is patentable and can be you know used used uh, for for revenue. So. Um, really, depending on the, the trajectory you think your company is going to take, we can decide whether we're going to act quickly or whether if you are just kind of, you know, moving slowly along and you don't have a lot of money right now, maybe you want to delay some things. Maybe you want to just be able to say patent pending and not have to pay any more fees for the next three years. Um, I, I bring that up because that's currently the, the trademark office, I think, or I'm sorry, the patent office uh, averages are about almost two years from the date of filing before you get a first office action, a first communication indicating, you know, whether, you know, um, whether your, your idea is, is patentable or not. Um, so there's really a lot of time there and it's, there's a lot of dead time. Um, or if you want to pay a, a pretty hefty couple of thousand dollar government fee, you can expedite, which will give you an allowance or a rejection within a year. That's our goal. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, so so there are, there are a lot of like different tweaks that we can do to either speed things up or slow things down or you know maybe we say it's a great idea it doesn't mean it's not a good product but we don't think it, it it's necessarily patentable so maybe you want to invest your your dollars into marketing and and branding and and market presence instead of instead of patents. And that's something that we do is we really take our time with every client that comes into the office and explore their particular business and their particular business plans and you know ultimately obviously the decision is up to the client but we certainly arm the client with the information so mm -hmm. that they can make the decision for their business that they think is most appropriate we will talk with them about you know a lot of investors perceptions about the differences between the provisional application and the utility patent application. I know we're hitting a lot of buzzwords yeah. here that <laughs> um, many people are not familiar with, but we sit down with our clients and make sure that they have a, an understanding of each of the different types of patent applications, if you know patent application is appropriate, that are available, and explore what they can do for the business so that they can move forward most appropriately for their particular business model. Sure. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's the thing that, like, what kind of appealed to me about having you guys on the show is I think a lot of people don't know where to start. And the interesting thing that, you know, that has come out of the conversation that we've been having is you almost basically contact you guys as soon as possible, and then you almost help people through the whole process, right? And you say, no, maybe it is better, like you mentioned, to spend money on marketing and maybe hold off on a patent or no, we need to do the patent right away. Mm -hmm. Where I think Absolutely. a lot of people don't know that, right? And and that's why it's it's tricky. And that's kind of why I wanted you, you guys on the show because like you both said that 
in a lot of times, like getting a patent, you need such a history and kind of science and biotechnology and, and, and whatever else, right, to give these things. And a lot of times people that are creating these things maybe aren't necessarily, they don't really maybe even know the law or understand the law or even really have ever really kind of cared about kind of following it because they've been kind of just chasing their dream or building something, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A lot of our clients, their their head is really in the game in terms of their business, and so they rely on us to know the law. And the law is something that's always changing, constantly evolving. And, you know, what you may know one day may not be true the next day. And mm -hmm. so that's why it's so important to rely on an attorney to, to deal with that issue. And I just wanted to go back for a second. Sure. Catherine had talked about the issue with the first to file in the United States. Okay. Um, in terms of the patent model. And I think it is so important, you know, when you do have an idea to get in touch with an attorney about, you know, possibly filing a patent application, because if someone does steal your idea, one, you've laid the groundwork, you know, with the attorney about everything that's been done. There's clear documentation and everything. And two, you know, you just want to get into the the patent office possibly as quickly as quickly as possible because you don't want to deal with the ramifications of mm -hmm. someone stealing your idea because, you know, trying to do something with the patent application that was filed with the stolen information, that's probably going to be really expensive and something that, you know, a new business owner doesn't want to deal with uh, and shouldn't have to. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious then, um, if I filed a patent, um, am I covered throughout just the United States, North America, the world? Like, how does that kind of work? Um, yeah, patents are patents are territorial, okay. and um, so if I file in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and I'm and I'm granted a patent, um, I can enforce that against anyone who makes, use, sells, imports. Um, something or does something that falls within the scope of my claims. And again, I know, I know we, we are using some buzzwords and, um, you know, but, but really it's the claims and we can get into that if you want or if not. Um, but that's, that's kind of the touchstone. So I can, I can enforce that all over the United States. Um, if I also want to file abroad, if I want to be able to enforce my patent abroad, then I have to go some other routes. Um, and there, there are some, some, some different ways you can file internationally. There, there is no such thing as an international patent right now, um, okay. but there is an international filing system that then allows you to delay the time you have to file in, in other countries. Um, it's called the Patent Cooperation Treaty um, application. But... Um, for example, say I, I know I want protection in Germany and France. Um, I can either file directly in the German Patent Office and file directly in the French Patent Office, or I can file what's called a, a European Patent Application in the European Patent Office. Um, so if I go that route, um, the patent is examined at the EPO level, the European Patent Office, and then if they say that it's, it's allowable, then I can pay a couple of extra fees and have it what they call validated in Germany and France. If I file directly in Germany and directly in France, um, it, you know, you're, you're being examined by some, some different patent offices, so your results might be different. Um, but, but if there's only one or two countries of interest and you want to go right there and then you know that's all you're going to do, then maybe direct filing is your, is your, your answer. Um, or you can, you can file the international application. But if you want to enforce it anywhere outside the United States, you do have to file 
you have to file abroad. Um, and one interesting caveat, Alyssa said that it's important to talk to people who know the law, and that's true because there are so many pitfalls um, for the unwary. For example, if I develop a product and I start talking about it and posting it on Kickstarter and you know, um, I make a prototype and I'm showing all my friends, in the United States, I have one year from the date of that first public disclosure to file a patent application. Otherwise, I'm barred from, from, from obtaining a patent at all. Oh. So you have a one year you have a one year grace period. So that's why time is really important. But even more than that, the US is one of the few countries that has a grace period. So if I think I want to file abroad and have protection outside of the United States, the minute I disclose I'm barred. So they have a no grace period policy, um, most other countries. So um it's it's for practicality we always say file something before you disclose to anyone, even in the United States. And that's often a pitfall for new inventors mm-hmm. and new um startup companies because they're trying to figure out how to generate revenue, they're talking to people, they're, you know, feeling out the the landscape of everything that's going on and then lo and behold they find out they can't get a patent. Sure. Because they've done a the public they've made a public disclosure. It happens a lot, actually. Um, you know, universities, they, they have their tech transfer offices and they file patent applications routinely. But, um, you know, they have to be very diligent about, you know, getting all the information from the professors, from the researchers, from the inventors, because, I mean, scientists love to publish. That's their that's their, their goal, you know, is to publish in journals and publish, you know, present at conferences. And if they do that before the tech transfer office is able to or gets around to... to telling their their outside law firm to file a patent application, then you could be in trouble. Right, and sometimes when that does happen to clients, if they come to us after the fact, we we try to problem solve with them Mm -hmm. and see if there is another way to protect whatever their idea is. Okay, interesting. So I I know we kind of covered a little bit of kind of what happened, like what, who you guys kind of service and we're kind of talking about kind of protecting yourself, but what do you guys kind of see or is there kind of a standard kind of way of kind of, in, in, to generalize, I guess, if somebody comes to you with like a hardware um, product or say a software um, product, is there, is it different? Is it the same? Or does it really depend on what their product is, whether it's hardware or software or a combo of both? Um, it, it'll depend because there's there have been so many changes in the law lately about what's patentable subject matter. Okay. Um, and and especially one of one of the the hardest hit industries really has been the software industry. Um, it, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to patent software sure. alone. Um, and, and some will say to the point where, you know, just don't even try. But if you have software that is run on a computer and causes an effect somewhere down the line, like maybe it's uh, some kind of automated machinery or maybe uh, robotics control or something like that where it's, it's not just an app running on your phone or, or just software that's like, you know, word processing software or something like that, if it, if it actually has a, a mechanical effect or, or there's some special type of analysis, um, then it, it may be more likely to be considered patentable subject matter. And then depending on the particular um, software product that the person is interested in, if patents, as Catherine was saying, are going to be more challenging or the person financially can't undertake trying to apply for a patent, 
again, there may be other areas mm-hmm. of intellectual property that could be used to try and protect that software product, whatever it may be. Obviously, we're talking very generally sure. about a large variety of different software possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but I, but I think that's kind of like the point that I was, that you guys, that I kind of wanted you guys to make is like, the, the sooner you guys, or the sooner like somebody comes and talks to like an attorney, the mm-hmm. better off they're going to be, right? Because you could really get burnt down the road or you think you have something that you can patent or, or whatever, but you, you may or may not be able to, but there might be other ways that you could protect yourself, right? Or your product or yes. service. Yes, certainly coming sooner rather than later is a great idea. It's always the, you know, penny wise, pound foolish um, <laughs> because people will come in and or they'll delay coming in and then they get, you know, slapped with a lawsuit or they get the cease and desist letter. And guess what? By that time, it's pretty late down down the road. And certainly we do what we can to rectify the situation, but it's often a lot more expensive, mm-hmm. a lot more time intensive, and oftentimes it can be very damaging to the business. Sure. So is there kind of, and I get this is just kind of a general um, kind of question, is there kind of a, a set amount that somebody should kind of set aside for kind of getting things rolling, um, like as a startup kind of legal fees? Like, is it a couple thousand? Is it 10,000? Um, is, is there kind of a general number that you're kind of should start out with? And when you come to like a firm like you guys and say, you know, kind of help me set up my company and see how I can protect my kind of property? Yeah, um, you know, we will... The, the quotes that we'll give now are, are are very much in line with the national averages. Um, if you're if you go to a very large law firm, um, especially general practice law firm, you may be looking at, at obviously more expensive. Or if you go with a solo attorney, you're maybe less expensive. Um, but in general, to just to prepare and file uh, a utility, it's like a, a, a your regular patent application that is examined um, is anywhere between seventy five hundred and ten thousand, depending on the technology because it sure. takes it takes us about 20 hours to prepare to go back and forth with the client um, to really understand the invention to work with the draftsman who prepares the drawings that are acceptable um, to the USPTO um, and then you know going through the actual process of uploading all the documents and making the filing with the USPTO um, but then there's also other costs that are involved and it's really difficult to give a, a soup to nuts sure. kind of estimate because you never know assume, some app- but- yeah, and 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 you just you just never know because so much examination is subjective, and it's true for trademarks as well. Um, trademarks are obviously less expensive than than patents, but sure. you know you get an examiner, and they're all trained the same way, but they look at things differently. So one examiner may have a completely different opinion than another. So um, it is kind of a lot of it's luck of the draw. I mean, how easily how, how willing the examiner is to work with you, to talk with you, to to try to understand the invention, um, but. You're looking at at least at least one, most likely two additional office actions. We call it so. Those are our opportunities to go back and forth and negotiate with the with the examiner to try to see if we can come to a mutually agreed scope of the claims. You know, something that we agree is patentable. Um, and each of those is is you know another couple of thousand dollars. And then if it's allowed, you have to pay an issue fee. And then there's maintenance fees over the life of the patent. So it's it can it can be extremely expensive. Or um, you know if it's if it's one of those 
rare unicorn inventions that is completely different and non-obvious than anything else that's out there. Maybe it goes right through first office action allowed. That's very rare, but um, sometimes it happens. So um, if, if you want to budget for a, a, a full patent, I would say budget at least at least 20. It could be less. It could be more. Um, but, but keep in mind that that's lar- most of that is going to be spread over, you know, other than your initial filing, that's spread over very many years. Sure. And putting my litigator hat on, mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> it's, it's very important that, you know, if you file the patent application and you do get an office action back, that's actually in a lot of, to- a lot of ways helpful to your application. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, if you get an issued patent, because what the United States Patent and Trademark Office is doing or the examiner is doing is looking at that application saying, is there something in this application that's potentially problematic? Is there prior art that's going to be problematic that I can find? And so it's really, you know, vetting out the application and giving you a, a second bite at the apple and seeing, you know, possible issues that could arise with the patent application and also if the patent actually issues. Of course, there's no guarantee when you get an issued patent that it's going to stand up in court. Sure. So this might be kind of a a stupid question, but is there kind of a minimum and a maximum amount that you can, like you get your patent, is it like five years, 10 years, 20 years? Does it really depend on what your technology is? Or like, how does that kind of work? Um, there, are, there are different, uh, they call art units in the USPTO. And depending on the technology area of your, your invention, they're assigned to examiners in particular art units. Um, so, you know, all the, all the cardiac ablation catheters are, are put into one art unit and all the, um, you know, the, the food containers are put in another, another art unit. Um, so I think some art units definitely have a, have a faster track record than others. Um, maybe they get fewer applications. Those applications are less complicated, so they're easier to examine. Um, so, so really there is no, um, there's, there's no kind of good estimate that's across all art units, but the average really is, is about three years. Oh, wow. Um, about three years and, and you wait almost two years for that first office action and then it kind of goes a little, a little more quickly. Um, but what happens is you file the application and then it just kind of, it's kind of in USPTO purgatory for a little bit until it's eventually assigned to an examiner. And then it goes on that examiner's docket and they get to it when they get to it. So if, if it's a particularly busy art unit, maybe they have 50 applications ahead of you and it takes them, you know, another year to get to it. And I think that that's something that's really difficult oftentimes for particularly startup companies because they really just want to get to the end of the line of the issued patent. Sure. And it takes all of these, you know, years from the date that you file the application to the time in which the you actually get an issued patent. And so, you know, there there's that uncertainty as to whether or not they're actually going to get an issued patent. Maybe some investors are waiting mm-hmm. for the patent to issue. And so, again, going back to what Catherine had said earlier, although, again, it's more money up front, it could be a couple thousand dollars to file um, the patent application on an expedited basis. Mm -hmm. You know, what if you have an investor that's willing to put in $20,000 when you get the issued patent? It may be worthwhile for that particular um, inventor to put in the extra money on the front end because it's really going to help on the back end with their business. No, that's really interesting. So I'm curious then what happens because, like, 
if it takes me, say, a year or two to get my patent and I get it for three years, what happens if I get acquired before, you know, or when I'm kind of in the midst of getting a patent? Like, how does that work? Uh, well, in, in that case, if the company is acquired, um, then the, the purchasing company, um, no doubt, will, will want the intellectual property rights. So in that sure. case, it can be assigned to the new company. Okay. Um, so when you file an application in the United States, um, really any country, you identify the, the inventors. Okay. And then you can identify the applicant. And with, with recent law changes now, the U.S. allows non-inventor applicants, whereas they didn't before. Um, so that kind of makes it, makes it a little easier because, um, you know, the inventors may or may not be the owners of the patent. You know, they may, they may have assigned their rights to, to their employer or to, to a different company. Um, and then that, that employer, that company, the owner now gets to control, um, you know, control prosecution of that patent. Um, so if, if, the patent is acquired by someone else. It's it's a fairly simple assignment to them, and then we record it with the with the patent office, and and they're the new owners. <laughs> Got you. Okay, so after so I get my patent. I have say hypothetically my I it's for three years. What happens after the three years? Can I apply to get it extended? Um, like, and when do I kind of start that process? Well, it, t- it takes three years for the patent to issue, um, meaning oh, okay. you're, you're an application, application until an examiner says, okay, we have something allowable, and then it issues as an enforceable patent. And so once it, once it issues, you can assert that patent against potential infringers. Okay. Um, the, the patent term you're given is 20 years from the date of filing. Oh, okay. Correct. I got you. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, there, are, there are different ways that you that, – that that term can be extended by a little bit, a couple hundred days, um, thousand days, something like that. It's called the patent term extension. So if the, if the if the patent office drags their feet and delays, they'll kind of reward you, give, you know, give that back to you a little bit on the back end. Um, but but yeah, so you have you have twenty years, and that's that's the the public policy behind the patent system because companies invest so much money into research and development and coming up with these products and services and and you know, maybe they wouldn't be quite as incentivized to do that if they didn't have the possibility of recouping a, a good portion or more of that cost in, in licensing and in sales and all the things that go along with, with having IP in a, in a product. Um, so, in ex- so, so you're given a 20-year monopoly for, by the government to do that. Um, but in exchange for that, you have to describe your invention in enough detail that at the end of that patent term, it's public domain. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people are very hard on the patent system because, you know, nobody should own certain things, um, but it's it's really a very limited monopoly. And at the end of that, the public is enriched basically by all the work and and, and investment that that the inventors have put into it. Right, and I think you often see that played out in the media mm-hmm. when it as it relates to drugs that are um, being created by different drug companies. And I know people often get very upset because the drug companies get this monopoly, as Catherine said, for those, you know, 20 years right. from the date of the, the filing. But at the same time, you know, they are disclosing ev- the nuances to the particular invention, so that enables others um, to then take whatever the invention was and try to make it better and mm-hmm. try to make something new, useful, you know, out of what's already existing. And that's why we have such incredible ingenuity and innovation in so many areas, because we do have this information that's publicly available and 
readily disseminated. Okay. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But then, but like, so once it goes public domain, nobody else can like basically file a patent again for that to so they can capitalize for another twenty years, or like it's just public yeah. domain. You can't do anything with it. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. And you can never once it's in the public domain for those twenty years, you can never try to file a patent application again for that same invention. That's it. You get the twenty years, and then you're done. Okay. And so if you have something that you think is similar to something that's already been patented and maybe public domain, you have to spend a huge amount of time obviously trying to prove like how you're significantly different. Well, not necessarily. And again, I think that goes to coming into a patent attorney very early on in the process, because there may be some, you know, minor tweak that you've made to a particular, um, creation or invention that you've made that differentiates it from, you know, what's already out there in the prior art. And so that's what we often do for clients is we can craft your patent application in such a way that it highlights whatever that nuanced difference might be from what's already out there in the prior art. Kevin, I like, I like your question. It reminds me of, of an example that um, I was talking to some people with about the other day. So, you know, when you have a patent you don't you don't necessarily own the world, you know, and sure. I can force this against anybody. And and I I always thought this dilemma was was so fascinating. Um, say uh, say somebody has invented the chair and they have a patent on the chair. Sure. Somebody else comes along and they say I can improve that, and they they invent a chair with wheels. Um, then their chair with wheels is is different enough that the patent office says, okay, you can have your own patent. So now we have two people, one with a patent on the chair and one with a patent on the chair with wheels. So the person with the chair with wheels has a patent because they, they have a new invention, but they still, are, are, they still can't make the chair with wheels because they need permission from the owner of the patent with the chair. Got you. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's a whole other part of the industry, too, that, that we also help, help clients um, navigate is um, cross-licensing and exclusive licenses and, and you know, partnerships and things like that where, um, you know, just because somebody has a patent on something that, that may be similar to yours doesn't mean that they're the enemy. It may, it may open doors for new opportunities. Maybe you go into business together or give each other exclusive licenses and really kind of piggyback on each other's, um, you know, market presence. No, no, I, I think that's, that's actually interesting. And you brought up something that's, that's really interesting. So how do you go about, okay, so like this chair, the chair example, like how do mm-hmm. I go about contacting the guy that owns the, the chair and kind of say like, okay, well, I really need to license your, you know, your technology so I can build my thing, right? Mm-hmm. How do you go um, about doing that? Yeah, on the face of the patent, it'll say um, it, it'll 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 say who the inventors are, and and in most cases there will be, I mean, not well, a lot of cases there there is an assignee like a company assignee. Okay. Um, so you can certainly find on public records the the contacts with the company. If it's an individual, um, I'm not sure if it how much information they provide, but um, Alyssa, do you know of a good way to to contact? I mean, oftentimes, you know, you can just go onto the internet and mm-hmm. find the person after you've located the information on patent. I would always caution people mm-hmm. um, in contacting them and the timing of contacting the um, owner, in our example, of the chair. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Because there may be certain things that, you know, you may want, not want to disclose everything yeah. all at once 
you know, right. in your first communication with the other inventor. Mm-hmm. So you definitely want to have a well-thought-out plan before you reach out to that other um, owner of the invention. Another reason to, to talk to an attorney. <laughs> no, no, like, but that's kind of why, like, where I was kind of going with this, right, is because if you need somebody else's patent, you kind of need to cover yourself before you go to them because if you don't patent it, they could basically just say, like, well, I'll just add that to my thing. Yeah, you know, in there's this is where the chess game of, of patent comes in. Um, if I have an application that's still pending, say, it hasn't been allowed yet, but it's being examined, sure. um, at any time I can file a related application that has the same... I've disclosed the same thing, so I'm not changing that. I'm just trying to redefine what I want to carve out as my my claims. And so the claims are really the meets and bounds of, of what you're allowed to enforce. So say I want to claim a little more broadly, or say I want to claim a different feature of my invention. I can do that. Um, I can also file what's called a continuation in part, and that is where you can add additional subject matter. Um, you may not get the benefit of the original filing date, and that's kind of a little more nuanced, but you are allowed to add certain certain amount of, of subject matter under certain circumstances. Um, so, so a new embodiment, a new feature. However, if you didn't invent it, then you're, you're, not, you're not the first inventor. So in order to, you, you not only have to be the first to file, but you also have to be the first, the, the, really the first inventor. You can't, st- you, you can't steal it from someone, in another, in another words. So if I see that a competitor is doing something and I hadn't thought of that, I, I, to prevent, you know, an allegation of fraud, I can't then say, oh, I'm going to claim that in my patent application. I mean, you can, you have the opportunity, you have some opportunity to add new stuff, but, but it, it still doesn't facilitate, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I got it. Taking got someone else's idea. Yeah. And, and I think that that goes to the heart of the, the patent drafting, as Catherine was saying, are the claims. And drafting of claims is certainly an art, <laughs> and sure. something that, again, is so important because that is what your invention is and that's what you're going to be entitled to enforce. And that's the basis of, you know, whatever you filed for 20 years. So if you get an issued patent. So you want to make sure that you have well-drafted, well-thought-out claims when you go forward with filing your application. And someone like Alyssa who... who does do patent litigation is in a really, really good position to draft strong claims because she sees it from both ends. She sees, you know, the, the havoc that, that weak, poorly written claims can do in the courtroom and and she sees, you know, how, how well crafted claims can stand up. And I think that that's why, you know, our office is so interesting because we do have what's called the prosecution side, so the drafting of the patent applications, the drafting of the trademark applications, the copyright applications, and all the related intellectual property. But we also see the litigation side, so we see where the problems arise and where things have gone wrong. And so it's always interesting because we all work together as a team Mm -hmm. to put together the strongest applications for our client. And then the same is true when we're litigating, we have the same kinds of resources because we're so actively involved in all facets of intellectual property. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I I think that this whole space is kind of fascinating to me, partly because I don't know tons about it, but it's, it's a little bit daunting when you kind of first come into this, right? 
Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and there's so many ways you can go, and there's so many ways to, like, based on kind of what you have and what's already out there. And I know, like, some of my questions have been kind of a bit general, but I think... No, that's important. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's kind of like people need a starting place, right? And I think a lot of people don't even know where to start. And I think just kind of getting advice from a a lawyer as soon as possible on kind of whatever you have and getting recommendations and the fact that you guys kind of do both sides of the fence is super useful for, for your clients. And I would tell people too not to be intimidated by going and talking to an attorney because there are a lot of a lot of firms, including ourselves, who will you know, do a free initial consultation, come in and talk to us, and let's see if there's an opportunity to work together. And, and they pick up, there's a lot of people that we meet that come in and talk to us that, you know, don't move forward for another couple of years. Sure, sure. Um, but but it's, it's that, that free kind of just the initial getting your feet in the water and, and just using us as a sounding board and, and trying to, to see if maybe your idea is viable. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, so maybe do you guys want to kind of close the show with mentioning again where people can uh, find you guys online and any other kind of social media links you guys want to uh, mention? Sure. Um, our website is www.cwiplaw.com. It stands for Christopher and Weisberg Intellectual Property Law. Dot um, com. We're all on there, and um, we do have a Facebook page as well, Christopher and Weisberg. Um, I believe we're on Instagram as well under Christopher underscore Weisberg. Um, you can also, if you Google either of our names, mm-hmm. we'll come up as well if you can't get onto the website for whatever reason. And we would also encourage you, if you'd like to follow us on Facebook or through Instagram or any other social media, um, feel free. We'd love to have you join us. Yeah, and do your due diligence. Check out check out our attorney profiles and and uh, any law firm you consider. Always look at their credentials and and see if you if you like their their style. <laughs> and I think something that's very important about intellectual property it is very much a niche area of the law, and there are so many technicalities and differences from other areas of the law. I know um, Catherine and I have spoken with many attorneys who don't practice in intellectual property law and have no idea of the difference between a patent and a copyright and a trademark. So let alone other people who have never ever really been introduced to any of these concepts like the lawyers had been in law school. It's a very daunting area that um, scares people, but I think a lot of times once you've had an opportunity to sit down with an attorney and go through, you know, what's available and your particular situation and circumstance, it makes the person feel a lot more comfortable. And, you know, knowledge is power. And once you get that knowledge and have that information, you can go forward and create a much stronger business plan and a much stronger plan going forward where you're going to get more investors more likely and you're putting yourself in a win-win situation. Sure. No, I, I think that's that's actually really good advice and makes makes a lot of sense. But uh, ladies, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule to be on the show. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, uh, you guys have a good rest of your day and uh, we'll talk soon. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Bye.
Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future. Let's go.